The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Lord, we want to commit to you your word that is life to us, uh, that is truth in the midst of all of the lies that we are surrounded with. We um, hear your word that gives us direction, that gives us strength, that gives us joy and hope. And so we pray that ministry of the word would be accomplished in our hearts this morning. Show us the way, show us what your desire is for us as a community. Show us what it means to love one another by the revelation of your Holy Spirit. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In Greek mythology, um, Narcissus was an exceptionally beautiful man. And he was surrounded by women that fawned over him and competed for his attention. But in his self-centered arrogance, he rejected all of them. He didn't want anything to do with them. Uh, including this beautiful nymph by the name of Echo, who chased after him and fought for his affection. Yet even this beautiful Echo was rejected ultimately by Narcissus. So she ended up fleeing into the woods brokenhearted. And she eventually faded into nothing until all that was left was her voice repeating whatever anyone else would say. Well, one day Narcissus <clears throat> came upon a pool of water where he, for the first time in his life, caught a glimpse of his reflection. And instantly, he became captivated by what he saw so that he couldn't stop looking into the pool. Uh, the myth goes that he stayed there day and night admiring his reflection and remained there by the poolside refusing to eat or drink even because he was so consumed by his own reflection until he eventually starved to death. Now, that's the story of Narcissus, okay? I, I used to think that these Greek myths were just silly fairy tales that the Greeks used to entertain their children. Uh, until one day I realized that um, they actually have some pretty profound messages about life if you look more deeply underneath the surface. I think the truth is that the Greeks used these myths to teach lessons about life. The tragedy of Narcissus stands as a real warning to all of us of the danger that every one of us faces in life of choosing the selfish life, the isolated life, a life of loneliness apart from love and community and others. I remember when I was back in my 20s, which was a little while ago, not that long ago, but a little while ago, um, I was actually reading about friendship and relationships. And I came across this quote from a guy who basically said that when you die, if you have two true friends in your life who will mourn your death, you are a rich man. If when you die, you have two genuine friends that will really mourn your death, you are a rich man. And at that time, in my 20s, my reaction to that quote was to dismiss it. I laughed at it. I didn't know who this guy was. I'd never heard the author before. 
But I thought he must be a loser, you know, to say something so pathetic as that. Because at that time, I mean, I felt rich with friends. I, I felt like I could count dozens of people that I would consider my friends. And the thought that you are rich if you have two friends when you die, I thought is ridiculous. But the older I get, the more I come to believe the truth of what he was saying. I think the truth is this. As we go through the different stages of life, whether it's through our education and then it's about raising a family and then it's our careers. I think there is a very real danger of pushing other relationships further and further down in our list of priorities to the point where after a while as we reach middle age and into our elderly years, we find ourselves living a very isolated life. Um, and what I've come to realize as I am in middle age now is that it doesn't even necessarily take a major conflict to lose a friend that you once cherished in your earlier years. It just happens by passive neglect, doesn't it? As you let one relationship after another just sort of fade because it's just too much work to fight for it. Um, and the truth is, as we lose those friendships, it's much harder to forge new friendships, to replace those ones that you had from earlier years, isn't it? It is really hard to form a deep, meaningful friendship later in adult life. I don't know fully why that is, but I, I know that that's the, the, the experience of many of us, to make one close friend later in life feels like it would take a miracle. Uh, just a month ago, uh, a, a very, what I would consider actually one of my best friends, a close friend, uh, reached out to me by email, just shooting me a note, wondering if we could connect by phone, because he lives out of state now, and if we can just try to catch up on each other's lives, our families, our ministries. That already says something to me, because the fact that we have to email each other to figure out a good time to talk instead of just getting on the phone and calling shows, but we're both uh, pastors uh, steeped in a lot of ministry responsibilities and just every week was not a good week and each week was busier than the next so really it was largely my fault but I kept pushing him off one week after another he said hey Steve can we call how about this week can we connect and I just kept saying no it's not a good time it's not a good it took over a month before we finally got on the phone with each other and so I profusely apologized to him I'm so sorry but that's just the way life goes a lot of times isn't it you get so busy that you just don't have time for other people in the midst of your own family and everything else that you need to get done in your day. I think the other truth is that relationships are often very complicated and messy. And often the greatest pains that we experience in our life comes from relationships of people who hurt us or violate our trust or don't come through for us. And so... A very common strategy, the older we get, you know, life is just simpler if you don't let people in more deeply into your life. And so often we don't. And there is a very real danger of living like an island, isolated and alone, completely devoid of any meaningful community in your life. I also want to say this. I know many of you have important relationships outside of ICC. Uh, maybe for you it's the moms that you've gotten to know at your daughter's dance or ballet class. Or maybe it's the parents of your kid's soccer team or 
uh, other neighbor, uh, neighborhood folks. Um, maybe it's the college friends with whom you share a very deep and rich history together. You might have sports buddies that you do fantasy football leagues with or that you watch games together with. I don't know. Um, and it's great that you have relationships like this outside of the church. But I also want to argue that those are not the same as the community that God invites you to experience through the local church. Because the glue in those other relationships tends to be the similar interests and the shared experiences that bind you together. Let me ask you, what are the symbols that represent your tribe? You know? What are, I, I don't know. Some of you are probably smiling because you connect with some of them up there, you know? What is the community that you most identify with? Listen, there's nothing wrong with getting together with some friends and catching up on the latest Korean drama or watching a Bears game or extolling the miraculous virtues of Rodan and Fields, okay? All of these things are great things. Lately now, everyone's been hitting me up because they know I like to cook with Instapot, you know? So everyone's like, have you gotten it yet, Steve? You know, you're going to get the Instapot. And they're sending me recipes and, like, pictures of what they've cooked in there and stuff like that. So, and I'm seeing it all over Facebook as well. So it's this idea that there are these common interests that bring us together and say, hey, we're in the same tribe. We're in the, we're in the, we're in the same group here. But these are communities designed by us to cater to our own preferences, our own interests. The community that God creates through the church is not one of our own choosing, which makes it both beautiful and challenging. Eugene Peterson writes of that tension. When I became a pastor, I didn't like much about the complexities of community in general and of a holy community in particular. I often found myself referring, preferring the company of people outside my congregation, men and women who did not follow Jesus, or worse, prefer, preferring the company of my sovereign self. But I soon found that my preferences were honored by neither Scripture nor Jesus. I didn't come to that conviction easily, but finally there was no getting around it. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and embrace of community. Community, not the highly vaunted individualism of our culture, is the setting for living the Christian life. Holy living, resurrection living, is not a self-project. We are a people of God and cannot live holy lives, resurrection lives, as individuals. We are not a self-defined community. We are a God-defined community. The love that God pours out for us, for and in us, creates a community in which that love is reproduced in our love for one another. Just as we don't get to choose our biological families that we were born into, we don't get to choose who our brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be. And the truth is, sometimes we feel like God made a wrong choice, right? When he chose certain people to be a part of his family. I think there's this incredible honesty of Eugene Peterson as a pastor to admit that he didn't like some of his own congregation members, you know? Saying, I didn't even want to hang out with them, you know? 
I actually wanted to hang out with some of my non-Christian friends more than I did with my own church members. There's a real honesty there, isn't there? And yet, at the same time, what Peterson came to the knowledge of is that opting out of that church community is not a choice that God gives us. God never intended us to live out our faith on our own apart from other believers. By design, we cannot be everything that God intended us to be unless we immerse ourselves in the community of the church. Without that, we become stunted in our spiritual growth as disciples of Jesus Christ. And part of that design is to teach us how to love those who are different than us. In other words, we ought to have some friendships in the church that can only be explained because of the common bond of the gospel. In other words, from a purely human standpoint, we would never be friends. We don't share the same interests or hobbies. We're not in the same life stage. We're not in the same ethnic group. We don't have the same color of skin. But God brings us together in this one family. This is the supernatural breadth that we've been talking about throughout this series. God is the one bringing us together But we also play a part in making that breath a reality in our church. Because the truth is, even in the church, there is a danger of us only connecting with the people that are like us from a human point of view, isn't there? And that's been one of the things that I've been urging at this pulpit throughout this series. My prayer is that God would do a work in each of our hearts that enables us to go out of our comfort zone. And extends a hand of friendship, particularly to those who you don't feel a natural affinity to. And you can say, the truth is, in a human point of view, I I don't think there's anything that pulls me toward you. But because of Christ, I want to extend a hand of welcome, a hand of friendship to you. The community found in the local church also ought to be characterized, as we've been saying, by supernatural depth. And this depth is accomplished by engaging in relationships that are intentionally centered on spiritual growth and the gospel. Last week, I referenced Tony Payne and Colin Marshall's metaphor of the trellis and the vine. In the garden, the trellis is the framework that enables a vine to grow. And in that same way, trellis work is all of the logistical work that allows a church to keep running as an organization. And so we talked about things like finances and budgets, serving refreshments, ushering, running an AV booth, event planning, seasonal decorations. On the other hand, vine work represents work that is directly related to helping someone grow spiritually. That includes activities like preaching and teaching, counseling, correcting, disciplining, intercessory prayer. And as I talked about last week, in many churches... There's a very clear dividing line between these two tasks. Lay people, regular church members, take care of the stuff in the left column, the trellis work. Whereas the pastors and other leaders, the elders, deal with the stuff on the right. But as we saw last week, the New Testament is filled with teaching that argues against this division. In other words, the New Testament teaches that every Christian ought to be involved in this vine work. Sometimes what is known as ministry of the word, what Ephesians 4.15 would describe as speaking the truth in love. I want to focus on the word love in this message today. 
And the way I want to do it is this way. In the New Testament, there are roughly around 59 commandments to Christians that contain this little phrase, one another. And so I want to look at what these commands look like because I think it really describes a picture not of leaders ministering to lay people, but it's talking about a mutuality in which the congregation is ministering to one another according to the design of God. And the overarching command that dominates all of them in the 59 is the command to love. It occurs over a dozen times in Scripture. John 13, 34 to 35, it says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Romans 12, 10 says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We reserve this word love for a very exclusive club in our life, don't we? I highly doubt that you've ever had such a good day at work that you just couldn't help yourself and you blurted out to your boss, I love you. you know? <laughs> I just wanted to say that, is I love you. Or you're so thankful to your UPS delivery guy because of all the great things he brings you that the next time he comes you say, you know, dude, I don't even know your name, I just want to tell you, I just love you, you know, because of all the good things you bring me. Um, Love conveys intimacy and commitment. Love is the language of family. And what the New Testament is teaching us is when we look at each other in this room, it's not about being courteous or polite. It's not about being fair. The operating descriptor for our relationship in the family of God is love. Love. Um, let, let me say it like this. There are a lot of ways we can experience God's love individually. You can, while you're having quiet time, through the word of God, suddenly feel overwhelmed by a sense of God's love by reading what he says in his word. Some of you resonate more in nature and you can be taking a walk on a beautiful spring day and you feel the love of God, you know? Uh, it could just be a, a divine work of the Holy Spirit that supernaturally fills you with that love. But I want to say this. The primary way that God intended us to experience his love and grace is through the ministry of others in the church. Do you understand that? That, I'm going to argue, is the primary way God designed us to experience his love is through the love of other Christians imparted to you. That's why church is such a vital part of God's design for you. And why when you exclude yourself from the community of church, you are robbing yourself of one of God's primary means of grace to you. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says this, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others 
as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. What Peter is saying is God empowers his saints with different spiritual enablements and gifts so that out of that gifting, we serve one another. And when we serve one another, we then tangibly experience God's grace for us by that ministry of another person directed toward us. This is the way that God's love becomes tangible to us. And I think the truth is there are a lot of us that are searching for that sort of supernatural experience of the Spirit in the privacy of our own devotional life, which is real and which we ought to seek. But the most visible way that you ought to be able to touch God's love is through what we do for one another. So you can imagine what it would mean to not be a part of a loving community of God's people. You are denying yourself such a vital part of God's ministry to you when you live in isolation as a follower of Christ. Now, out of that command to love one another, I think that is the overarching command out of which all the other one another's flow. And I just want to highlight three of them in this message. The first one is affection. I know that often in the church when we talk about love, it's, it's, this is sort of the model that we use is love is not a what? You know it. It's because I never ask for interaction in a message. Everyone's like saying, oh my God, does he wanting to really speak? A feeling, yes. Love is not a feeling. It is what? It is action, right? It is duty. Now, there is a degree of truth in that. Love is not a feeling. It is about unconditional action. Uh, but I don't think that captures the full picture of love that the Bible offers if we reduce it to nothing more than duty. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Look at Peter's description of love in this verse. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. There is an undeniable emotional component to this. A softness, a tenderness that is vital to what it means to receive love from someone. I think this is speaking volumes to the way that we are to regard one another and treat one another in the local church. Look at these one another's. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Some of you are getting nervous. Where are you going with this? Listen, we're not going to implement the holy kiss at ICC as part of our church culture. Um, but I want to talk about this a little. Um, obviously, this idea of kissing as a greeting was part of the cultural norm in the early church in those days, in that society. But at the same time, I don't think that meant every one of these ancient people were going around kissing everyone else 
like we would wave hi to somebody, okay? Because if that were actually happening, then the apostles would not even need to give this as a command to the church, would they? If everyone was automatically kissing each other just as a cultural expression of greeting. I think the truth is, more likely, these kisses of greeting were reserved for only the most inner circle of the people that you felt intimate with, close friends, family, loved ones. And so I think what the apostles are commanding the early Christians to do is include your brothers and sisters in Christ in that circle, in that inner circle. And they said, when you see a fellow believer, kiss them as well, because they are part of your family as well. Now, that does challenge us to think about what would that mean for us to obey this in the church today, in the 21st century in America. One thing I would say is this. I can't say I'm the most traveled guy in the world, but I have visited a fair number of foreign countries through mission projects and things like that. And one of the things that I'm struck by is how so many other cultures outside of the U.S. uh, have physical touch as such an important part of sharing intimacy in a non-sexual way. Okay, I remember the first time I went on a, a mission trip to Africa. I was walking down the street with this uh, Christian guy who was going to work with our team. And just out of the blue as we were walking, he grabbed my hand and he held it. <laughs> and we started walking. And I felt so uncomfortable. I, I didn't know what was going on. I honestly was confused. And I was like, is he making a pass at me or something like that? Um, Because we don't do that in America, right? No grown adult man grabs another adult man while you're walking. Say, I just wanted to hold hands with you as we walk to the gym, you know? (laughs) But I came to find out that that African men do that regularly. And there's no connotations there of sexuality or anything. It's just an expression of friendship. And when I learned that, it, it just actually really warmed my heart. That sometimes you're just at a church talking about it, and they'll just grab your hand, and they'll just put it in yours, and they'll just do this. And what initially I was really put off by, I grew to actually like a lot. There was something so powerful holding someone's hand while you're talking with them. I learned that even when I was pastoring a predominantly Filipino church, right? How much more physical contact there is in Filipino culture. All the kissing, all the hugging. You know, Koreans just don't do that, right? We're just not like that. But I grew to like that fact, that you greet each other with a kiss. You greet each other with a hug. Let's be honest here. We're living in a time where physical contact has become a huge liability, right? We're in a very big no-touch zone in America today because we're so phobic about physical contact, whether it's to children or the opposite sex. And I want to acknowledge there is a caution here. There is. Especially, I think, when it applies to children or the opposite sex, okay? But I think there is something that we are robbing ourselves as a community when we are so afraid of healthy, non-sexual touch within a body of believers. Um, It's interesting. A lot of studies are coming out that are showing that teenagers that are lacking the physical touch of parents and other loved ones are more likely to be involved in promiscuity and premarital sex and even eating disorders, right? 
there's something starving in the soul of that child that longs for healthy, appropriate touch so that when they don't get it, they look for it in inappropriate ways in the world. And I want to say we are physical beings. We have bodies. We're not Christianity can't all be lived in the mind, can it? Right? We are physical beings. And so we can talk about the love of God. But sometimes when you're really hurting and someone just puts an arm on the shoulder, that speaks more than a hundred words, a thousand words of saying, I'm here with you. I love you. And I'm walking through this with you. And so I want you to wrestle with that a bit in your own heart of what is the way we can minister by showing affection and love to each other in a healthy way. Maybe it can involve hugging someone when you greet them or just putting a hand on an arm or a shoulder when you pray for them. Or maybe it could even be simply the eye contact and a genuine smile that you offer. For a lot of us, that'll be a big first step because we never make eye contact with anyone. We're always looking down, right? But just to even make healthy eye contact with a smile can speak volumes to someone and say, I regard you. I acknowledge you. I am glad that you're here. So what I can say is one of the expressions of love one another is the mutual affection that ought to be shown in the church of Jesus Christ. Another one that I want to point to is acceptance. Acceptance. Romans 17, 15 verse 7 says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Romans 14 verse 12 to 13 says, So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Here's the truth, is in this brutal world that we live in, whether it's in the realm of academics or career or sports, basically everything in the world basically tells us, prove yourself, show your worth, demonstrate that you're worthy to belong to this community, that you fit in with this group. And there's something incredibly exhausting about always feeling like you have to perform, right? And I think what these commands about acceptance are saying is that the church ought to be the one place in this world where we find acceptance not based on our performance, but because of God's grace, expressed through the mercy and acceptance of fellow believers. Listen, there is a proper place for discernment about other Christians, where it may even lead to correction or rebuke. And when it's done with humility and love, that's a powerful ministry too. But I think what these verses about acceptance are addressing is the, the deeper, more sinful, condemning, self-righteous attitude that we so often hold over others, especially when we see their failures and weaknesses. You know, the truth is, a lot of times even in the church, we can be like sharks that smell blood in the water, right? We like to kick someone when they're down. And I think what's key about this teaching is saying, listen, you are not this person's judge. I don't know who made you think that that was a job responsibility you have is to go around judging everybody else, saying God alone is that person's judge. 
It is out of that understanding that it says, accept one another. Stop judging each other. But love that person. Back to restoration and healing. And can you just imagine a church where that was true? Where a person can fail or fall or sin or struggle. And they know that this is a safe place. This is a place where I don't have to wear a mask or play games or act like I'm doing better than I really am. But I can come clean and be honest and confess and I'm not kicked when I'm down because of that. But I find people that accept me. Listen, of course there is the expectation of change. We all should be growing spiritually. We all should be overcoming as a growth process. But the message of acceptance is, but that change isn't what gives you your acceptance in the church. You are accepted before you change. You are accepted in your struggle because God has accepted you in His grace. And that is the message that ought to ring true in any community of God's people. The last one, and I'll end with this, is that uh, that of encouragement. That of encouragement. The Christian life is difficult. It's tough. And it is so easy to fall into discouragement in trying to live out your faith. Maybe it's the opposition you experience as you try to live out your faith. Maybe it's the disappointment in your own lack of progress and growth. Maybe it's the temptation or sin that you just can't seem to overcome. Maybe someone you trusted disappointed you. I don't know where your discouragement and disappointment is going to come. But I think because there are so many ways to be discouraged, the Bible offers to us the ministry of encouragement to our fellow believers. 1 Thessalonians verse 5 Verse 11 says this, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Hebrews 3 verse 13 says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You know, the truth is for most of us when we face discouragement, we tend to recede into a pit of self-pity, don't we? And we tend to become very self-focused. And the truth is very few of us handle discouragement in a healthy way. We drown ourselves in comfort food or in entertainment or just wallow in sorrow. And the truth is, I think in our world today, When you think about this idea of encouragement, there are so many empty things that we can say to someone when they're in that state of mind. You know, like, you know, even a phrase like, this too shall pass. Well, what if it doesn't? Um, Things like, hang in there, buddy. Um, Or, you know, when someone fails, "Ah, don't be so hard on yourself. You're not that bad. You'll get it next time. (laughs) What if they fail the next time, right? It's tough when you try to think about, what can I say to encourage this person? And help them out of the doldrums that they're in. When we look at this picture of encouragement in the Bible though. It is not fundamentally about trying to help them to feel better about the circumstances that they find themselves in. Or even to feel better about themselves. In the Gospel of John we see Jesus address this issue of discouragement among his disciples. And look at how he handles it. In John chapter 14 verse 1 through 3 it says... 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You see, when Christ saw the discouragement in his disciples' eyes, he didn't say, ah, don't be sad. It'll be better. (laughs) But what he said was, look at me. Keep your eyes fixed on me and my promises to you. I think that is at the essence of encouragement from a Christian perspective. And I want to say this. There is a skill in learning how to do that. There are ways to throw Bible verses at people, aren't there? In a way, that's not helpful. That can almost put heavy weight further on a discouraged person. But there is also a way to come alongside a person and lovingly and with humility use the word of God as a source of comfort. Let me say this. If it doesn't ring true in your own life, chances are when it comes out of your lips, it's going to feel like a cliche. You know? God is good all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel better? (laughs) But when you know God's goodness, and you know he's helped you out of a difficulty, then you can minister someone out of that genuine faith to say, man, I'm hurting for you. And you know, there was a time when I went through that same feeling, but God is good. God is good. And he's faithful to his promises. And he's going to help you. Romans 15, verse 4 says this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. That's the whole purpose of scripture. So that when we see what God has done in the past, we become encouraged for our own battle and find the endurance to fight through whatever God is asking us to face. It's interesting, as some of you guys might know through social media, uh, Betty ran the Chicago Marathon uh, this last year. And... uh, she, this was her second marathon, but the one that she ran before was out in some rural area, Fox Valley or something like that. And, and so after she finished this race, what she told me was, in that first marathon, you know, it got so sparse. Sometimes it was going through like woods and stuff that like, it was hard. You were like the only one there sometime. But she said, what was so unique about the Chicago marathon was that every step of the way, there are these mobs of people cheering you on. When, whoa, they don't even know you. But it just gives the runners this incredible surge of encouragement and strength to keep finishing the race. If you were all by yourself, probably you'd want to stop. But there are all these people that are wanting and willing and cheering for you to finish. And, and I think that is the picture of encouragement in scripture is not about making you feel better about yourself but about saying keep fighting keep taking that next step because God is good that's it for what I have to say in my message this morning but I just want you to envision what our church could look like if these things were honestly true 
of our community. And I want to say this. As your pastor, I want to be the first to admit, I don't think we're there yet. I love our church, and I'm so excited about what God is doing and has already done in our midst. But I'll be the first one to acknowledge we have a long way to go to fully realize these things that I'm talking about. But that is my hope, that is my dream, and that is my fundamental belief in what God can do in our midst if we would only open ourselves in that way. This is one of my greatest fears for ICC, is essentially what we become is just a service, a service, an event. We gather once a week to do this thing for a couple hours, and then we all go our separate ways to live our isolated lives. And that is not the church of Jesus Christ. It's how we come together to minister to one another, filled by the Spirit and the gifts that He imparts to us. And out of that enablement, I have something to give to you. And I want to say this. I think some of you are hurting in this room and feeling like, you know, well, when are those people going to minister to me, you know? And maybe you do need ministering too, but I want to also say this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, do you understand that God expects you to give as much as you receive? And there, there cannot be half of us saying, yeah, well, some church this is. When is someone going to do that for me? And the other half running around like chickens with their heads cut off trying to serve everyone else. That's the whole point of the one another's, isn't it? Is every one of us has this responsibility. Every one of us has this calling, and here is the faith step. Every one of us has the ability because of what God gives to us in our life to offer this ministry of love to one another. Let's pray.